Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. A few patrons wrote in and asked me to talk about the rape case that happened at Stanford University. And at first I was avoiding the news about it because the news depresses me. But after a number of patrons asked me to talk about it, I decided to do a deep dive and to talk about it here on the show. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. I just want to give a little warning at the beginning and say that it is a very difficult topic uh, for everyone, I would hope. It, It was very hard for me to read about all of this. And I am, to some extent, uh, still a little traumatized and rattled upon reading all this. I just have been reading about it for the past five or six hours and reading all the accounts and all the statements. And and it's, uh, you know, and I've been visualizing all of the events in my mind. And uh, it's a difficult thing to read. And so you should be warned that if you have PTSD or dissociation around sexual trauma or really any kind of victimization, you should be careful about listening to this sort of stuff. I'm going to try to not be unnecessarily graphic, but there are some things that need to be talked about, I think, that are relevant. And so uh, you should be warned about that. Okay, so what can I say? Oh, and another caveat here is that everything I'm about to say is gleaned from the Internet, which is, as we know, is rife with, uh, with misinformation. And I tried, again, I, I tried to go to original sources for everything, and I must have read, I don't know, 50 to 100 different sources. And... Uh, so I'm trying to be as accurate as possible, but there's no way that all of this is 100% accurate. So just keep all that in mind. All right. So the perpetrator, his name is Brock Allen Turner. Brock Turner is his name. He was born in 1995, and that means that right now he's 20 years old and during the assault, which was a year ago, he was 19, I believe. I think he had just turned 19. He went to high school in Dayton, Ohio. He was an All-American swimmer. He was a freshman. after, after So after high school in Dayton, Ohio, he went to Stanford. Uh, so he was a freshman. Uh, he was uh, in his first year at Stanford University during the assault. I think he was maybe even in his first semester. And he was a member of the university's swim team, and he had aspirations to be on the U.S. national team in the 2016 Olympics, which is this year. So he had high aspirations. His life revolved around swimming. So uh, I, I would tell you information about the victim right now, but she has chosen to remain anonymous, and so I don't have any details about her. So the incident was on January 18th, 2015. So it was about a year and a half ago. 
and it began when two Swedish. Well, it it the the story begins. I'll begin the story at the point in which the rape was discovered by two Swedish graduate students who were riding by on their bicycles at 1 a.m. And they spotted Brock Turner on top of a 22-year-old unconscious woman outside the Kappa Alpha fraternity behind a dumpster. She was half naked from the waist down. One of the Swedish dudes on the bikes said to Turner, he said, what the fuck are you doing? She's unconscious. At that, Turner got up off the woman and ran. One of the men chased him down, tripped him, and held him. And they called the police, and the cops arrived, and Turner was arrested. So that's where the story begins for us. The immediate aftermath was that two days later, Stanford University announced that Turner was not permitted to return to campus, so they acted quite swiftly. Turner then voluntarily withdrew from Stanford, but it's a little academic at that point, excuse the pun, because he had been not permitted to return to campus. Also, the USA swimming team indicated that he would never be eligible for membership. And also it should be noted that it was discovered that Turner did not live in the frat. He was just at the party. He actually lived in the dorms. So then we go to the trial, which was a while afterwards, you know, months later. And Turner's attorneys, the defense attorneys, argued that she had consented to the sexual encounter. And her account of the incident was that she had no memory of it. And she said she must have been passed out because she doesn't remember any of it. And there's a lot of evidence that she was completely passed out. So that's the trial in a nutshell. He was convicted in the March in March of 2016, which was a few months ago. Turner was found guilty by uh, 12 jurors. He was found guilty of three felonies, assault uh, with intent to rape an intoxicated woman. So that's a, that's, a, that's a felony. Assault with intent to rape an intoxicated woman. He was also found guilty of the felony of sexually penetrating an intoxicated person with a foreign object. And when I was reading all the stuff, I, do, I, I don't know what foreign object he inserted into her. So that was a bit confusing to me, but apparently there was a foreign object involved. So that's uh, uh, not pleasant to think about. And the third felony was that he sexually penetrated an unconscious person with a foreign object. So that he was so you can so the two different felonies you if you're if you sexually penetrate an intoxicated person with a foreign object then that's a felony and if you sexually penetrate an unconscious person with a foreign object that's also a felony it's very specific felonies you'd think it would just be like general sexual assault but they have very specific felonies okay 
So he could have faced up to 14 years in prison, by the way, which to some extent seems like a light sentence in, in my view, but, uh, but up to 14 years. And the prosecutors recommended that Turner be given a six-year prison sentence, not the 14, but they said, I'm guessing they thought they wouldn't get the 14. So they're like, well, at least give us six years. And I quote them, uh, they said, he purposely took her to an isolated area away from all the party goers to an area that was dimly lit and assaulted her on the ground behind a dumpster. He deliberately took advantage of the fact that she was so intoxicated that she could not form a sentence, let alone keep her eyes open or stand. This behavior is not typical assaultive behavior that you find on campus, but it is more akin to a predator who is searching for prey. So then the sentencing happened just a few days ago. This is June 2016. Judge Persky a seemingly white male, concluded that a lengthy prison sentence would have a severe impact on Turner. Judge Persky, it should be noted, was also a student and athlete at Stanford University, just like Brock Turner was. Judge Persky sentenced Turner to six months of jail and three years of probation. And with good behavior, Turner may have may have to only serve three months of a sentence. So, in all likelihood, Turner will will serve three months and three additional years of probation. And you know, probation isn't that big of a deal, you know. So it's basically uh, just three months of of prison. And he also must register as a sex offender and participate in sex offender rehabilitation uh, sort of therapy. So, you know, that's you know something to say right there. Okay, so in the aftermath of the sentencing, the day after the sentencing, on, on June 3rd, 2016, which was five days ago, the, the news, uh, the news, a lot of news outlets uh, published a statement from the victim and again, she remained anonymous. And I'll get more into her statement later. I'll actually read a bunch of it. It's actually well written. She's actually a really wonderful writer, coincidentally, I think. And uh, she's a good spokesperson for, for victims, but I'll get into more of that later. Prosecutors and also victims' rights advocates have said that the sentence was way too light. So... Prosecutors have been like, "Hey, that will three months? What or six months? That's way too short." And and victims' rights people were also saying that's too short. And there's been such a such a an internet or societal uh, amount of anger that Judge Aaron Persky now faces a campaign to recall him in the state of California. So I'm not exactly sure on the legality of that, but I think. If enough people sign a petition, I think there can be a revote to see if he should be uh, ousted from his position as a judge. And uh, I would guess that uh, he is done. And my guess, and he probably should just resign instead of making the state go through the re- the recall, because uh, 
if this uh, amount of mirth even persists another week or something, I would imagine his career is uh, pretty much over. A family friend after the sentencing. So, so after people were very upset about the sentence and there was a, a, you know, a national outcry about the, the light sentence, a bunch of people started coming forward in, in defense of Turner. And a family friend, Leslie Rasmussen, who just happens to be in the band Good English, she's a, I think a drummer in the band Good English, she, she's a family friend and she submitted a letter to the court defending Turner. She described him as a sweetheart and she described him as not a monster. She also said, I quote, I am not blaming her directly for this because that isn't right. She's referring to the victim. I'm not blaming her directly for this because that isn't right. But where do we draw the line and stop worrying about being politically correct every second of the day and see that rape on campuses isn't always because people are rapists? So because she's been, unquote, uh, because she's been saying these things, the band has been dismissed from several scheduled events. Apparently, Good English was on tour or something, and the band has been uh, uninvited. The shows have been canceled, not by the band, but by people that were running the shows. But let me just go through this statement. So she's saying, I'm not blaming her directly for this because that isn't right. So let's just, let's just read that. I'm not blaming her. So this is a letter. She isn't just speaking off the top of her head. She wrote this down and sent it to the court. I'm not blaming her directly for this because that isn't right. Directly. So she's, she is basically saying she does blame the victim. She blames an unconscious woman for being unconscious, I suppose. But where do we draw the line and stop worrying about being politically correct every second of the day? <laughs> I like how being anti-rape is being politically correct. And in my world, what's wrong with being politically correct? I don't know. If you call a you know black person an N-word... It's politically correct not to call black people N-words, right? So uh, what's wrong with political correctness? One. Two, this is absurd. Political correctness, uh, since when is, is rape or being anti-rape, since when is being anti-rape being politically correct? How, how is that? How, what? Okay. Um, so and then she says, and, you know, we need to stop being politically politically correct. And we need to see that rape on campuses isn't always because people are rapists. That is like one of the stupidest comments I have ever heard in my life. Honestly, I cannot think of a dumber sentence. We have to see that rape on campuses isn't always because people are rapists. That makes zero logical, coherent sense. If rape has happened, then the person that did the rape is a rapist. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to read her statement again. We need to see that rape on campuses isn't always because people are rapists. 
unquote. Maybe I'm missing something here. Like maybe someone can tell me what she means by that, but it's nonsensical. <laughs> if a if a murder happened on a campus, then that was conducted by a murderer. Even if that was the only murder that person had committed, if you have murdered, you are now a murderer. So if you have raped, even if it's on a campus, you are now in my book, a rapist. So there we go. So the father also had some things to say after the sentencing and after there was the public outcry about it being too light. The father said that it was a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action, is what he said. So he was trying to tell everyone, look, my son has... You know, this sentence is, is, is fine because this is a very steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action. So let's just, again, break down this statement a little bit. And the father has been slammed for this statement quite severely. But a steep price. So when you say something is a steep price, you're saying it's, it's too much. So the father is saying that his son the sentence of six months is actually too much. It should have been much less than that. So that's one thing to take note of. And then he's also saying that what happened was, quote-unquote, 20 minutes of action. It wasn't a, a brutal rape of an unconscious woman behind a dumpster. It was 20 minutes of action. 20 minutes of action implies to me that the father just sees it as consensual sex. That, that, you know, they had consensual sex. And he is, uh, you know, being blasted by people for that. Okay, so I want to go into her statement for a second. Or not for a second, but for actually a while, because, again, it's well-written, and I think it really, it really describes it well. Plus, it was the only account I could find from anyone regarding what happened in the trial. I'm sure other things will start coming out in the future. Again, this is just... Uh, four, four or five days after the trial itself. But she actually talks about what happened in the trial a, a bit. And so you get an idea of of what went down. And, and possibly, and, and she's also the only one who really describes perhaps what might have happened because she describes what Turner claimed in court. Anyway, so I'll, I'll just get to it. So this is all from her. Uh, okay. So, well, I'm not going to read her directly. I'm going to, I paraphrased uh, a bunch of this. So she said that she went out with her younger sister to a frat party. She said she was just going to stay home, but her younger sister convinced her to come to this frat party. And she said she thought it was sort of silly because she was 22 or 23 at the time and felt like an old an old woman. <laughs> she felt like she was a cougar. She didn't say cougar, but you know, that kind of talk. She she said she felt like an old librarian that was going to a young person party. Uh, as a 40, as a 45-year-old man, I can say it's, it's silly that a 22-year-old person would feel like an old person compared to 19, 20-year-olds. But I do remember thinking that when I was in college. I remember thinking that there was a huge difference between 22 and, and 19. Now I know that there is very little difference, but I certainly thought there was a big difference then. Anyway, so... She says that she was convinced by her younger sister to go to this frat party. She also said that she got extremely drunk on accident. She said she didn't mean to get really drunk, but she got really drunk. Nothing wrong with that. P. 
people get accidentally drunk all the time. Nothing wrong with that. And then the next thing she remembers is she's in a in the hospital on a gurney. And she so she doesn't remember anything. She she remembers being at the party, getting super drunk, and then the next thing she knows she's in the hospital. And a deputy is there and explained to her that she had been sexually assaulted. And then she tries to remember what happened and she can't remember a thing. So she must have been extremely drunk to be that, uh, to have no memory, to, to have a complete blackout. You'd have to be very drunk. And again, there is nothing wrong with being extremely drunk. There is nothing wrong with that. Happens to people all the time. Okay, she goes on to describe the awful procedures that they performed on her to gather evidence that she had been raped. Just, you know, like there was a, you know, she says, she describes a Nikon camera in between her legs as she spread her legs and they're taking pictures of all sorts of stuff. I mean, it just sounds, just sounds terrible. And then she got home and her boyfriend told her that she called him the night before and left a really drunk voicemail. And he said he was really worried about her and she decided not to tell him what had happened. She didn't want to, she didn't want to tell him yet. She just didn't feel ready to do that. She also didn't tell her family. She, in her statement, she describes her emotional turmoil that she went through afterwards. She describes feeling numb and just going through the motions. Then she randomly came across an article that described her assault. Apparently the press had maybe got a hold of the police report or something. And that this is how she learned what happened to her. Can you imagine that? You get raped. You're unconscious during the rape. You wake up in the morning and you have no idea what happened. And then, I don't know, weeks later, this article comes out and you read these details. And for the first time in the, in the newspaper or online or something, you, you learn what happened to you. And the article described that she was found unconscious with her hair disheveled. A long necklace was wrapped around her neck. Her bra was pulled out of her dress and her dress was off over her shoulders and pulled up above her waist. She was naked all the way down to her boots. Her legs were spread apart and she had been penetrated by a foreign object by someone she didn't recognize. You know, she's looking at, she's, she, maybe there's a mug shot of the kid or something. And she's like, I don't even, who was that guy? Penetrated by, so there's that mention of the foreign object. I don't think they talked about the foreign object. I, I, I don't know if I, maybe, maybe I should look that up. Oh, you know what I bet it is? I bet foreign object is his hand, is his finger. That's the legal term for your, when you're raping someone with your finger. That's a foreign object. That, that must be what it is because if, it, if he actually was using a foreign object, I'm guessing we would have heard more details about what that meant. So it must be the legal term for raping with your finger. So going on with her statement, she also read that he, in this article, she's reading this article, she also read that 
he indicated that he didn't know her name and that he said they were dancing and kissing before the rape. She said she thought he would settle out of court, but instead he hired lawyers and investigators. So she was thinking, well, clearly he's going to settle because this is an open and shut case. So, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm not going to have to go to court. But then she learned that she would have to go to court because they're, you know, they're going to hire lawyers and investigators. During the trial, he claimed he didn't know why they were behind the dumpster. So during the trial, he's like, I don't know, I don't know how we got back there. We, we fell down, he said. He said he asked her to... So she goes into detail. It's actually interesting, but she, she goes into detail how his original statement didn't mention anything about consent from her that it was sort of a bland statement, but at no point in his original statement did he say that she consented to anything. But then suddenly a year later in court, there's all this affirmative consent claim. So in court, he said that he asked her, and, and she doesn't remember anything, so she can't refute it. She's just saying it doesn't sound likely, but she can't refute it because she doesn't remember. And so... You know, he was saying in court that he asked her to dance, and she said yes. Then he asked to kiss her, and she said yes. Then he asked to put his fingers inside of her vagina, and she said yes. So if this all sounds a little fishy to you, it certainly did to her as well. And it seemed as though maybe his lawyers coached him to come up with these things because they thought it would be good in his defense. I don't know. He also claimed that she orgasmed after one minute of digital penetration. This is all what she was talking about in her statement. Uh, She also said in her statement that he said that they had sex. He said he, he, he only ran. So this is again, what she is reading or what she is experiencing in court. Uh, She was saying that he said that, he only ran because he suddenly didn't feel well, like he was sick. That's why he suddenly ran when the two Swedish guys showed up. He said he didn't feel well. She also said in her statement that there was testimony from the medical staff that there was obvious trauma to her vagina, that there was dirt, abrasions, and pine needles inside of her because I guess behind the dumpster there was, there was a lot of pine needles. She said that he said in court the following thing. He, he claimed that being drunk, I just couldn't make the best decisions and neither could she. So it's an interesting statement, right? Being, you know, I was drunk. I, I couldn't make the best decisions and, and she was really drunk. She couldn't make the best decisions. He also said in court, I stupidly thought it was okay for me to do what everyone around me was doing, which was drinking. So this is actually a theme in his statements. Uh, it's, I'm going to also read some of his statement that he released to the public. And it, it, it's, he's really focusing on the drinking aspect of what happened. He, I don't think, ever refers to the rape or the sexual assault. He, he just refers to the drinking. He's very... Uh, he's very ready, ready to admit that he should not have been drinking and he should not have been so drunk. 
And uh, so that's just something to think about. Also in her statement, she said the lawyer said, the defense lawyer said that the only reason Brock Turner had an erection was because it was cold outside. (laughs) So this is just, I don't know, it's just typical lawyer bullshit. But, you know, the lawyer is trying to come up with a defense for why the, the, you know, why is there an unconscious woman and uh, witnesses come upon this man who has an erection who is on top of an unconscious woman. Well, the lawyer's like, well, the, hey, you know, the only reason why he had an erection was because it was cold outside. Uh, that is utterly ridiculous. I can't even, if that happened, because this is all her account, so, you know, we have to, you know, consider that. But if that was a defense by the, put forth by the lawyer that, hey, he wasn't raping her, he just randomly had, a, had an erection at the time because, you know, it was really cold out. I, that's not even a rumor, right? I mean, that's, uh, when, when it's cold out, it, isn't it the opposite? Like, on, hasn't, haven't they watched Seinfeld and Shrinkage and all that stuff? I mean, when it's cold out, erection is the opposite of, I think, what typically <laughs> happens. So I just think that's, uh, it's just, you know, tragically hilarious. Okay. In her statement, she also talks about not being able to sleep at night for fear of being raped again while she's unconscious. She talks about how she can't connect with her friends. She describes other traumatic reactions like crying a lot, being triggered while watching movies, being terrified. She, she goes into some detail on that and it's, you know, quite convincing that she's been traumatized and it's, you know, obvious if you imagine you, this was you, you would be traumatized. A lot of people would say, well, how could she be traumatized? She doesn't remember it. Well, yeah, she doesn't remember it. And in a strange twist of events, if no one told her that she had been raped, her trauma might have actually been less, but in our country, you tell victims what happened to them. There's no policy of like, well, don't, you know, don't. So in her head, she would imagine what had happened to her and that that's what traumatized her in all likelihood. Now, she could have also been, you know, in her, in her mind, in her psyche, been traumatized and not known it. Like, say no one told her what happened. Her body could have known, in a sense. And that could have absolutely been traumatic for her. So, uh, so anyway. She, 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 so to people that are like, well, she didn't, re- you know, she can't remember how could she be traumatized. I'm telling you, she absolutely can be traumatized by this. And like I said, just imagine if this were you. And you wake up and then you read in full detail like this thing that happened to your body while you were unconscious. In some ways, it's more traumatic because you you don't even know what happened. You just have this like account for for what happened to you. It it can be just utterly terrifying to 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 know that you're you're so vulnerable to other people like this, and that other people would do something like this to you. It's it's a very scary notion to 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 have. 
to a much lesser extent, you know, let me perhaps make it a little bit more common if you can't relate. Imagine someone breaks into your house while you're not home. So you're not home and you come home and the door's broken in and they rummage through all your stuff and they took stuff and everything's in shambles. If you've ever been through a situation like that, it feels violating and it freaks you out because you wonder, is this going to happen every day? Who was this person? If they're capable of breaking into my house, what else are they capable of? Are, are they going to hurt me? Where do they, do they live next door? I, you know, it's, it's terrifying. Now to people uh, outside of that situation that don't have empathy, they might say like, well, what's the big deal? You weren't home. It's just, it's just your door. Insurance is going to replace all that stuff. Why are you freaking out? It's because we have emotions and we're human beings. And when we have a reason to believe that we're in danger, then our brain has mechanisms to alert us to that and to make us focus on it for our own safety. And we can't help it, but to become highly attuned to that situation and to have a traumatic reaction. We evolved to have a traumatic reaction to stuff like this. You know, when and again, you know me in evolutionary psychology, but it seems likely that when we are on the Pleistocene savanna and the um, uh, something horrible happens to you, like say a tiger uh, jumps out at you in a particular forest, well, our brains evolved mechanisms to remember, okay, the next time you hear this particular noise and you're in this particular forest, you should run like hell because uh, you could die. So there's a reason why traumatic, scary events become so encoded into our being, into our, the fiber of our brain. It's, you know, because it's, it's, it's a protective mechanism for future danger. And when you go through something like this, it, it causes a traumatic reaction. Anyway, I wasn't prepared to talk about the biological or evolutionary basis for trauma reactions. So I'm not quite sure if that came out right. As I always say, I might be talking out of my ass. So uh, that's always a risk when you're just sort of rambling into a microphone at 11.26 p.m. in the evening. Okay, I want to quote some things that she says because I think it's really beautiful. She, 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 at the end of her statement, goes on to thank a bunch of people. She says, To everyone from the intern who made me oatmeal when I woke up at the hospital that morning, to the deputy who waited beside me, to the nurses who calmed me, to the detective who listened to me and never judged me, to my advocates who stood unwavering, unwaveringly beside me, to my therapist who taught me to find courage in vulnerability, to my boss for being kind and understanding, to my incredible parents who teach me how to turn pain into strength, to my grandma who snuck chocolate into the courtroom, <laughs> my friends who reminded me how to be happy, to my boyfriend who is patient and loving, to my unconquerable sister who is the other half of my heart. Most importantly, 
Thank you to the two men who saved me, who I have yet to meet. I sleep with two bicycles that I drew taped above my bed to remind myself there are heroes in this story, that we are looking out for one another. It's just beautiful. It just makes me want to cry. And then she ends with, And finally, to girls everywhere, I am with you. On nights when you feel alone, I am with you. When people doubt you or dismiss you, I am with you. I fought every day for you, so never stop fighting. I believe you. It's just amazing. She's just amazing. It gives me chills. She's an amazing writer, and I, I, I just think this is perhaps... I, I've never read a, a better victim manifesto. <laughs> I think it's, it's just amazing. Okay. So, you know, just kind of my reaction to reading her account, I, I recommend you read it. If you're a, particularly if you're a therapist out there, you should just read her entire statement. It's very moving and a little educational about what people go through around this stuff. And I guess I would also say if you're one of those first responders, so to speak, you're a nurse that deals with stuff like this, or you're a deputy, you can learn from this statement how to best serve victims and justice for that matter. I also just think it's important for everyone just to be aware of that this happens every day in every corner of our society. And also, I think a wonderful thing we can really learn from this is that innocent bystanders, people, you know, witnesses can can intervene and actually do wonderful things. And so I think it's important to read. Okay, so let's get into his statement. I'm just going to quote him because I'm paraphrasing would, wouldn't do it justice. And, and just a side note before I read it, his statement is not well written, I would say. He does not, I don't know because I haven't met him, but from his statement, he does not seem like a sophisticated dude. So it's just my impression. I don't know. Maybe he's, you know, super sophisticated. I don't know. But it's just my impression. Okay, so quote, The night of January 17th changed my life and the lives of everyone involved forever. I can never go back to being the person I was before that day. I am no longer a swimmer, a student, a resident of California, or the product of the work that I put into to accomplish the goals that I set out in the first 19 years of my life. Not only have I altered my life, but I've also changed Redacted and her family's life. So I say Redacted because the, she, he, he, he mentions her name a number of times in this, and they redacted it because she wants to remain anonymous. So, so he says, not only have I altered my life, but I've also changed her life and her family's life. I am the sole proprietor of what happened on that night, that these people's lives were changed forever. I would give anything to change what happened that night. I can never forgive myself for imposing trauma and pain on her. It debilitates me to think that my actions have caused her emotional and physical stress that is completely unwarranted and unfair. 
the thought of this in my head every second of every day since this event has occurred. The thought of this is in my head every second. Um, These ideas never leave my mind. During the day, I shake uncontrollably from the amount I torment myself by thinking about what has happened. I wish I had the ability to go back in time and never pick up a drink that night, let alone interact with redacted name, let alone interact with her. I can barely hold a conversation with someone without having my mind drift into thinking these thoughts. They torture me. I go to sleep every night having been crippled by these thoughts to the point of exhaustion. I wake up having dreamt of these horrific events that I have caused. I am completely consumed by my poor judgment and ill-thought actions. There isn't a second that has gone by where I haven't regretted the course of events I took on January 17th and 18th. My shell and core of who I am as a person is forever broken from this. I am a changed person. At this point in my life, I never want to have a drop of alcohol again. I never want to attend a social gathering that involves alcohol or any situation where people make decisions based on the substances they have consumed. I never want to experience being in a position where it will have a negative impact on my life or someone else's ever again. I've lost two jobs solely based on the reporting of my case. I wish I never was good at swimming or had the opportunity to attend Stanford. So maybe the newspapers wouldn't want to write stories about me. End quote. So I think you can hear in his writing, he's not the best writer. He's kind of rambling a little bit and his sentences are oddly formed. I mean, as a, as a professor, when I read stuff like this, it kind of hurts my ears. But I, uh, you know, he, he's not writing a term paper here. He's just writing his thoughts. So, you know, you get the, you get the idea of what he's saying, but I think that it's interesting because there's, there hasn't been a lot of reporting on this statement. It actually took me a while to find it. And it's, it's interesting to me. He, he is clearly suffering, right? And as a therapist, I, I've treated perpetrators before and I've learned to have compassion for them. I, I've learned, I, you know, I've never been able to say that what they did was right or, you know, forget. I've never been able to forget the horrible things that they've done to people. And I will purposely try to remind myself, look, this guy, you know, he, he did this, this and this because I just don't want to ever uh, dishonor the act that happened. And so, uh, but I have to say, as I read this, I do have some compassion for this, for this guy. And there does seem to be indications of remorse. Um, I'll get more into that later, but um, he goes on to say, I made a mistake. I drank too much and my decisions hurt someone, but I never ever meant to intentionally hurt redacted name. Never, never, I, I never ever meant to intentionally hurt her. My poor decision-making and excessive drinking hurt someone that night, and I wish I could take it all back. So again, right here, as I was saying before, he's really focusing on the drinking too much 
instead of on his choice to rape somebody and to sexually assault someone who has passed out. So just I just want to read, because this, this is where he, it, in his statement, he doesn't really talk about, he, he doesn't indicate why it happened. You know, he never says anything like, I have a problem with being obsessed with sex with passed out women or, you know, he, he never says anything. There's no explanation. It's like, how could you do this? Cause we all know that alcohol doesn't cause people to rape people. It exacerbates a, a something within you, you know, most men and women for that matter, no matter how drunk you get them, they can never commit an act of rape because it's just not in their makeup. They don't want to, <laughs> they don't, they don't have a desire to do that. And so, you know, th- there's nothing in a statement that satisfies my curiosity as to, is he, is he a serial rapist? Is he, you know, is he into this sort of thing? How did he make this choice? I mean, sure, he's drunk. Great. But how did he, how did he end up doing this horrible thing? You know? So again, just reading this, this passage again, I made a mistake. I drank too much. And my decisions and my decisions hurt someone. So there is that one statement. My decisions hurt someone. So that's he's admitting guilt there, but he's not saying sexual assault or rape or anything. I think, and, and I'm just so curious if I could just talk to him and I can just ask him. I would want to say, what do you mean by your decisions hurt someone? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because if he just says something like, well, you know, I shouldn't have drank so much. It just, you know, made a mistake and I hurt someone. I drank too much. And I'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, there's something wrong with you. But if if he said something like, uh, or he's in denial or whatever, you know. But if he said something like, I have, I've been sexually abused as a person and, and my whole life I have had impulses to to do this sort of thing. And... I've done little things like this in the past and I have to say it's it's something that I thought I had I had uh, dealt with and eliminated but then because I was so drunk I don't know it must have emerged in me again. That is a a viable story. There I know people. I, Berto, Umberto talks about this how he had been sexually molested by his uh, female older babysitter at, when he was a young young boy. And then as he grew up, he exhibited behaviors that were uh, inappropriate or exploitative of other people. And he noticed it and tried not to do it. And he said, okay, I have to stop doing that. But then as an adult, when he would get really intoxicated, that those behaviors would emerge again. And then he'd wake up in the morning and say, whoa, what was that? And he would apologize for it. So that doesn't make it right, and Umberto would never say that that was okay, or it, and drinking is not an excuse by any means, but at least it provides some kind of storyline to what led up to this, because if you just go on what he's saying, he's he's just saying, man, I drank too much, you know? You know what happens when you get drunk? You, you end up raping women behind a dumpster. I mean, that's basically what he's saying, and but I don't know if that's what he's saying. <laughs> that's what it sounds like he's saying. And I'm just so curious as to, I don't know. I just wish I could talk to him. Of course, I'll never talk to him. But 
So again, he says, I made a mistake. I drank too much and my decisions hurt someone, but I never meant to intentionally hurt her. My poor decision-making and excessive drinking hurt someone that night. And I wish I could just take it all back. My, my poor decision-making and excessive drinking. So it's just, you know, poor decision-making I, I equate with things like, eh, I shouldn't have got that tattoo. You know, that's poor decision-making. Raping someone who's passed out behind a dumpster is not poor decision-making. That's just evil exploitation of another human being. I, I, you know, I, it's not poor decision-making. So, but, you know, he is basically admitting. Now, this is his public statement. Is he just drumming up language to appease people? Who knows? You know, we'll probably never know. Uh, Then skipping forward in his statement a little further, he says, I want no one, male or female. Come on, pal, let's not be be binary here. But uh, anyway, he says, I want no one, male or female to have to experience the destructive consequences of making decisions while under the influence of alcohol. I want to be a voice of reason in a time where people's attitudes and preconceived notions about partying and drinking have already been established. I want to let young people now, as I did not, that things can go from fun to ruined in just one night. Maybe that's a typo. I want to let young people know as I did not, that things can go from fun to ruined in just one night. So this is, again, he's focusing on the drinking, and he's sort of making it seem like, yeah, you know, when you get drunk and, you know, you fall down, and I really want to help people to avoid that. He's just he's making it seem like what happened to him is normal or just a natural consequence of, getting really drunk. He's really focusing on, on the alcohol part of it. And in, again, he's not my client. I've never talked to him, but I suspect that he, he genuinely does have quote unquote remorse and that he really wishes he hadn't done that and that he knows he harmed someone. And I think it's so difficult for him to cope with in his mind that he has a form of denial. He's, he's minimizing it is what they call it. Right. And in, in the defense mechanism language, he's, he's minimizing the charges. He's bringing the charges down from rape to just drinking too much and making a mistake because drinking too much and making a mistake is easier to swallow as something that you've done than purposefully harming another human being, which to some extent indicates if if he truly is in pain over the acknowledgement that he did something bad, then that's kind of a good thing that he actually doesn't want to see himself that way. But having said that, serial rapists will typically justify their behavior by saying stuff like this. So, you know, it's not, it's really, it's really hard to tell what's going on from this statement. Again, I haven't talked to him, so it's hard to tell. And looked at in one way, he's just a young kid who doesn't know how to process this. And so that's one way of looking at it. Another way is possibly is that he is a, an evil, sadistic person. And I'll get into more of that later as what are the possibilities. But uh, 
Well, actually, no, let's just go into those now. So, so let's go into his story a little bit before I go into three distinct possibilities, three categories of, of possibilities as to what I see are what actually happened. Because I'm, I'm just so curious, if I were there from point A to point, you know, C, what would I have seen? You know, because she doesn't remember what happened, so we can't ask her. And apparently there aren't any witnesses that were at the party. At least no one ever talked about that. But uh, we have only his account. And according to him, uh, the story just doesn't add up. You know, why did he run? Uh, And also, she was clearly unconscious. She didn't just, according to him, she just suddenly became unconscious, which doesn't make any sense. And the 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 swedish dudes who passed by said it was obvious that he was raping a lifeless body i mean that's why they said what the fuck are you doing to that to that woman she's unconscious you know if if she were even mildly into it they wouldn't have reacted that way in all likelihood right and they said that he was doing things to her hard and she was just lying there passed out and again, there, there's no amount of alcohol that can get a normal person to do something like that. So his account of, well, I was just really drunk, it, that just, it doesn't add up. Um, so, so let's get into the three possible things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide three possible scenarios that, I, that, are, that are, and all three of them are possible. One is the best case scenario for his sake, and then... The second one I'll talk about is probably a reasonable scenario that is the likely thing that happened. And then there's the worst case scenario, which is also possible, but it doesn't seem likely given the fact that he doesn't have any prior convictions or any other evidence that he is a sadist or anything like that. But So the best case scenario in his favor is still that he raped her, but but let me go through it. So the best case scenario for his sake is that he's never raped anyone before. So let's just start there. It's just hypothetical or not hypothetical, but a possibility we don't really know. But so let's, let's say in this scenario, he's never raped anyone before. He's young. He's kind of stupid. He, he might even have low IQ. Who knows? He really wants to impress his friends. He's from the dorms. And he goes to this frat party, and he really wants to impress these frat guys. He gets really drunk, and she gets really drunk. They're dancing, and they're kissing, and it's all consensual. And they both are attracted to each other. They both like each other. They go outside. They start messing around. She passes out while they're doing stuff. And then he decides to do sexual acts on her while she's mostly unconscious or, or, you know, to him at least probably unconscious. And he, and he justifies it in his mind by saying that she consented before she passed out. And then these two Swedish guys show up and they yell at him and he's just a 19 year old kid and doesn't know what to do. And so he suddenly realizes this looks bad and he just panics and he runs. So again, I don't know. 
if this happened or not. And there's some evidence that this might have been the case. And she doesn't, even in her statement, she doesn't refute his statements that they might have been dancing and kissing. She she doesn't say like, I don't, I, I never would have danced or I never would have kissed. You know, she doesn't say that. She, 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 what she says is, is that, okay, fine, we were dancing and kissing, but that doesn't mean you can rape me in, you know, near a dumpster outside, which is absolutely true. But anyway, so it's, it's possible. This story is possible that it all started out completely innocent two very drunk individuals messing around and then she passes out. But there's this line that I think even in the best case scenario for him, there's this line that he definitely crossed. There's no way around in my mind, given all the evidence that he knowingly was committing sexual acts to a woman that was at least mostly passed out, if not completely passed out. So there's no scenario that doesn't include that, at least that element. And so I think that, uh, but the way that I framed this best case scenario for him, it's still rape, still sexual assault, but it, it paints him in a, in a better light, you know, but I, I think it's possible. Um, and in this situation, three months or six months in, in being incarcerated would probably be enough to have you never do this again. Uh, I don't know that, but, uh, if, if this best case scenario for him is true, then the sentence actually might fit the crime. I don't know. I'm not an expert on that sort of thing, but uh, so that so that's the best case scenario for him. So that's that's scenario number one. Scenario number two is what I believe is probably the reasonable truth, but again, no way for me to know. But it's it seems to me to be the most reasonable, and I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out why I think it's the most reasonable. I, I think it's because in my head, it just seems to fit all the evidence. I guess okay. So in the reasonable scenario, he knows that she's very drunk and he's actually not as drunk as she is. And he knows that she's an easy target. And so he goes after her, not in a super predatory, rapey way, but he's, but he's thinking, oh, she's really drunk. She'll probably be more amenable to make me making moves on her. And I think there's some account that he made a move on his sister and that she, the, the sister pushed him away or something. So he was on the prowl, you know, and then he comes across this, you know, very drunk girl, but she's standing and, you know, talking for the most part. And, uh, she, they're dancing and, and they're kissing and it's all consensual, you know, quote unquote consensual because, if you were watching it from the outside, you, you wouldn't necessarily know how drunk she was. And so, you know, it all seemed on the up and up for the most part at that point. They go outside together. And again, consensual in quotations, because how consensual can she, you know, be if she's that drunk? Uh, and, and he knows it, he knows that she's very drunk and he's thinking like, Oh, you know, maybe we'll fool around and this will be fun. And, uh, lucky me that I got to, 
you know, I found the the girl who wants to do something tonight, <laughs> and I found the girl that she, you know that she's that she's so drunk. So this is the reasonable scenario. I in the reasonable scenario, he knows that it's wrong. I can't imagine a nineteen year old kid today in today's society, especially a Stanford kid, not knowing that it is illegal to have sex with a super drunk girl. I just can't imagine a 19-year-old college kid, on the West Coast particularly, not being aware of what date rape is and not being aware of the risks of this sort of thing. I just can't believe that. He, he must have come across it many times. There might even be formal trainings that are documented that he went through because a lot of college campuses will actually require all their students to do this. So he had to have known that it was shady. That's just my guess. And my guess also, based on what he was saying, because he talks about peer pressure and about getting too drunk and, you know, he's this dorm kid that's at a frat party. My guess is that he wanted to score with someone in the misogynistic way. He wanted to brag the next day that he had sex with someone near the dumpster at the party. And he, he wanted to get some high fives for that. There is definitely an element of that sort of thing with young men, particularly on college campuses. And so my guess is, is that, uh, you know, Occam's razor, he wasn't as drunk. He knew she was drunk. He knew it was wrong. He wanted to score with her. And he probably didn't intend on her completely passing out, but he probably wasn't that bothered by the fact that she was almost passed out. Let's put it that way. So they go outside. She passes out at that point, and he takes her clothes off just enough to rape her, and he proceeds to sexually assault her. And then some guys arrive and yell at him, and he knows He's doing something wrong at this point. And he says, shit, if, if they, you know, if they come closer, they're going to realize what's happening. I got to run. And so he runs. And so to me, this is the most reasonable scenario that he is, he has a problem for whatever reason that the problem isn't uh, severe, but it's there. He, he has an issue uh, of some sort. That, that drives him to do stuff like this and match that up with his insecurity and his desire to, you know, get approval from other people and maybe even the fact that he's got a big drinking problem. But I don't know. Most people with drinking problems can't rape people. So uh, my guess is, is it, I don't know, some sort of narcissism or some sort of just really insecure or something. And matching that up with perhaps the environment and other kinds of things. My, my guess is, is that he knew what he was doing was wrong. Because why would he run? Why, why would he just so instantly run? If, if things were even in the, in the sort of best case scenario for him, why wouldn't he just say to the guy, look, you know, she's not passed out. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, go away. We're, we're having sex, you know, move on. Why would he just so quickly without any words just get up and run? The other question is, once he got caught by the Swedish guy and he's being held down, why didn't he just say, hey, look, pal, you know, I don't know what you think happened here, but 
she's fine, you know, I, and I only ran because you scared me or, you know, everything pointed at guilt. It's like the O.J. Simpson thing, you know, if, if you really look at the story, uh, if you're that innocent, why are you running and, and threatening suicide? You know, it's just, it's not definitive evidence of being guilty, but I don't know, to me, it's, it's, it's definitely a piece of the pie. Okay. So that's the, that's the reasonable scenario is that again, he knew it was wrong. He, he knew that she was very drunk. He wasn't as drunk and he was insecure and wanted to score. And he's not a sadist. He's not out to harm people. He's not, he's not a serial rapist in this scenario. Okay. So worst case scenario, this is the third scenario that I think is, is possible. In this scenario, it's the worst case scenario. He's a psychopathic, sadist, rapist. There's, there's a possibility. I mean, given the behavior, it would be uh, consistent with, with that. You know, he's, he's got a personality disorder. He likes to harm other people. He gets off on that. Because that's an important thing to, to note here is that, you know, the, the, part of the reason why most men, most people cannot do something like this is because they, it doesn't turn them on sexually to have sex with a lifeless corpse. Uh, most people that, that is the opposite of what, of what turns them on. And so, um, you know, there's a possibility here that he actually gets sexual arousal from, from this sort of rape. And this is right up his alley. You know, this is, this is in his wheelhouse. So there's a possibility that he's a psychopathic, sadistic rapist and that they never flirted. There's a, cause that's all his account. She doesn't remember that. So there's a possibility that they never flirted and that he frequently goes to parties looking for very drunk women. And then he notices that the victim is extremely drunk and he targets her. He might've even given her more to drink. It's, you know, hard to know, but then he, you know, is there when she is almost falling over and he drags her outside knowing that he is going to rape her and he proceeds to sexually assault her in his, especially, you know, the, the whole foreign object thing. And I just, it just seems like that's an important detail that we just don't know much about yet. So again, worst case scenario, he's, he's a serial rapist, or at least he, you know, this is, this is what he likes to do. And then two guys arrive and confront him. He knows he's done something wrong because he's known this thing about him for, you know, years that there's been, that there's something wrong with him. And he's like, shit, I'm, I've been caught finally. And then he runs. This is, so this is a very possible scenario. Uh, and in this case, if, if this is the case, he needs to be locked up a lot longer, right? And he needs to be made sure that uh, he is treated or at least watched or monitored or something because if if this is the case, then he's at a very high risk of harming other people. So, you know, those are the three scenarios that I that I can see are possible. And again, in all three scenarios... At some point, there uh, a line is crossed, and he knows he's doing something wrong, because again, she was 
by the time the Swede Swedish dudes arrive, he she's passed out completely, and he's doing sexual things to her. So hard to know when that line was crossed or when he intended to cross that line, but that line had been crossed before that moment. And then the fact that he ran, it just, you know, so at the very least he, he crossed that line, you know, a few minutes before the guys arrived and he, he knew he had done something wrong enough at least to run. And at, at the worst case scenario, he's done this many times to other people and gotten away with it. That's an absolute possibility. Okay. So, I want to talk a little bit about justice because the the big controversy on the internet is all about justice and about the fact that he wasn't given a strong enough sentence. And this is all related to concepts and philosophies around justice. What is justice? What is our prison system for? Do we put people in prison for revenge? Is it because we, you know, we say, hey, you did this bad thing and you, you know, you deserve to be punished for X amount of time because uh, of we want to get revenge on you for doing something? Do we apply prison sentences as a deterrent for other people and say, like, look, look what we did to this guy. If you're thinking about doing that thing, think again, this guy's in prison for a long time. Do we do use it as a deterrent? Do we use prison or the disciplinary system, the justice system for rehabilitation? Are we interested in stopping people from doing this in the future? More Is that more important than revenge? Uh, are we, uh, do we use prison to protect us from criminals? Do we put them in prison to protect us from their propensity to crime? So there's a lot of debate about this topic and you could take many classes in law school or in other kinds of schools regarding this issue. And it goes back centuries regarding how to think about all this stuff. And different cultures think about it differently. And in the United States, we uh, are particular for putting people in prisons for a long time. We have one of the highest percentage, uh, one of the highest percentages of people in prison of any country in in the world, uh, or at least the developed countries, I'm not sure. But we, we have a ton of people in prison, and we have a ton of people in prison for a long time, whereas other societies don't tend to do that. And in those societies, they're, they're not overrun by crime. You know, that's the whole thing. It's like, well, if you're not tough on crime, then, you know, a bunch of crime would happen, but that's that's not that's a very simplistic way of looking at the justice system. There are so many other ways of protecting our citizens other than putting people in into, you know, prisons for a long period of time. So it's just that's just some element that's playing a role here because when people hear of the details, white boy is raping an unconscious girl at a frat party behind a dumpster and he only gets six months and possibly only even three months in prison where other guys are in uh, prison for decades because they were selling marijuana. This doesn't make any sense. Or black guys are in prison for you know dealing cocaine on the corner. Uh, this seems like much worse of a crime 
why isn't this guy in jail for 20 years? You know, so that's, that's a, a major element in the controversy, if not the only element of the controversy, really. So, uh, so that's just something to think about. And I'm not an expert on that. Uh, I have my own opinions about it, but they're just lay person opinions. I, I don't really know. My, my general thing is, as a as a therapist, I would I would hope that we are putting a lot of effort into rehabilitation so that it doesn't happen again. Because for a lot of people that commit crimes, there are mental health or trauma or childhood experience reasons as to why they do that. And if we can provide treatment for these people, uh, a lot of times they will stop the cycle of of crime. And when you talk to incarcerated people, a, a lot of times, unless they're psychopaths, but a, a good majority of them are not psychopaths, they they really want to have a good life and they really don't want to lead a life of crime. And so it's just a matter of helping them establish that. And so that's my therapist. Now, as a non-therapist, I want all criminals to rot in hell and I want them to rot behind bars. I, I want you know, I want to protect the people I love and myself, frankly. And if you're, if you're prone to crime, I want you to stay away and I want you to be on an island somewhere where you can't hurt anyone that I love. And so, you know, I'm of two minds here, obviously. All right. So here are a few of my analyses and a few of my um, additional thoughts on this. There's been a lot of people on the internet blaming his family and friends for the statements they're making. You know, I, I kind of made fun of some of the statements that the drummer from Good English was saying, and the, I think the drummer, and uh, the father was saying, you know, I was making fun of them. But if the victim uh, was, was your friend, or sorry, if, if the perpetrator was, was your friend, if, if you were friends with Brock Turner or the father uh, for that matter, of, of Brock Turner, then you would likely want to defend him. In some ways, as, as his father, if the father doesn't defend him or try to defend him, he's not being a good dad. And also, we can't expect all fathers in situations like this to be progressive and understand misogyny and understand rape culture we can't necessarily expect them to do that. Now, this doesn't mean we excuse it in any way, but I I just want to point out that if you were the father of this kid and this had happened to to your family, the amount of stress that this dad is going through and the people around them, the, the amount of stress that they're going through is tremendous. And the likelihood that they're going that the likelihood that not everything they're going to say is going to be well thought out or not wrong headed is very slim. So I, I, I don't really blame the father. I, I I'm sure he's just going through a horrible, horrible time and yeah, someone should probably educate him on misogyny and rape culture, but probably not today. Let's just hold off. There's no need to, to really slam the situation right now. So I, to me, I feel like I can't really blame his, his friends and family, and I, I feel like we should 
take it easy on on them. I, I think it's fine to comment on what they're saying and say, look, when the father says twenty minutes of of what do you say, twenty minutes of fun or something, um, you know, it's not exactly right headed. But I, there's been death threats and all just all sorts of horrible things that are happening to the father and uh, and other kinds of people. So the other thing that's happening on the internet is that people are blaming the defense lawyers because the defense lawyers, you you know, drummed up a defense like it was cold and he had, that's why he had a bonus because it was cold. Well, for people that aren't close to the justice system and the legal system, they, they don't understand this, but it is a defense lawyer's responsibility. It's their ethical duty to figure out a way to get their client the best deal possible it's their ethical duty to spin things in the favor of their of their client. If they don't do that, then they're actually acting unethically. Their client has hired them to do the best job they can to be found innocent or something, right? Or not guilty. And, you know, we can debate the morality of this, certainly. We can say that some defense lawyers will lie or will get witnesses to lie. And we can debate the morality of this. And I, I, I'm of the mind that I think it's immoral and should be unethical to knowingly deceive a jury. But at the same time, it's, it's such a common practice that we can't really blame these particular defense lawyers. I think we just have to if we have a problem with what the defense lawyers did, then we really should just look at our our legal system as a whole. And, and I also don't blame the public for not really understanding that because unless you're uh, a little bit more intimate with the legal system, you really just don't get it. And that's why so many divorce uh, family court situations are so horrible because most people don't understand how divorce court or family court works. You know, they have this notion. It's like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into court and I'm gonna prove that my ex-husband is an asshole, and the judge is gonna side with me, and I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get everything. And what they, they just don't understand is that it just never works that way, or at least very rarely works that way. And it's just, it's just a natural ignorance that people have. Anyway, uh, along those lines, we regarding the judge. Now, we can blame the judge for some things, but if we want to blame him, we really have to indict the entire judicial, judicial, judicial system in the same way that if we want to blast these defense lawyers, then we have, to def- we have to blast all defense lawyers. And if we want to blast this judge, then we really have to look closely at the entire system because he's not an aberrant actor in this system. Now, what we can blame him for is that it seems very likely to me, although I can't prove it, it seems very likely to me that he went easier on Turner because Turner is a white athlete from a good school like Stanford. We can absolutely blame the judge for that, you know, seemingly very obvious bias for white middle-class kids. But... We also have to acknowledge that many experts, and I read this uh, in many reports, many experts, uh, they, they say that the judge provided a very typical legal sentence 
for situations like this. And one expert said, quote, we don't believe that we have a basis to appeal because his decision was authorized by law and was made by applying the correct standards. So according to people that have reason to want to fight this sentence of just six months, they're saying that he, the judge applied the correct standards. Also, another person defended him. It's a lawyer. Her name is Molly O'Neill, and she's a, she's a gay woman, and she has a daughter heading into college this fall, which is perhaps relevant, and she's also a known feminist. And she said that it is appalling that uh, what is happening to this judge. She says it's appalling that everyone's attacking him. She says, quote, We lock up more people in the United States than anywhere else in the world. To what end is this case? The sentence was totally fair, not out of line, given his lack of criminal record, end quote. So again, according to this one person who, you know, incidentally is a feminist and a, a gay woman, she's saying, look, it's, don't blast this judge. The judge did something totally normal and the sentence was fair given the fact that he doesn't have a previous criminal record and all that kind of stuff. So don't blast him because this is, this is what we do and there's reasons why we do it. So now you as a listener might say, I don't care about what this woman is saying. I don't care what the experts are saying. It's bullshit that a, a, a rapist can only go to prison for three months. That's that's just wrong. That's just not right. Look, I am mostly on board with that as well. Anyway, that's what I have to say about the judge. The other thing that we can say is we can commend many of the people that helped her afterwards. I was really glad to hear that she had so many people to thank afterwards. I just want to read that thing again. She said, she, she said, I want to thank... Everyone from the intern who made me oatmeal when I woke up at the hospital that morning to the deputy to the deputy who waited beside me to the nurses who calmed me to the detective who listened to me and never judged me to the advocates who stood unwaveringly beside me to my therapist who taught me to find courage in vulnerability to my boss for being kind and understanding and, and so on and so forth. I mean, these are a lot of professionals that don't always have the best reactions to victims. And there are many stories of police officers not being appropriate and not being helpful. And so I, I just want to commend all those people that apparently did right by the victim. And it's just great to know. And this is, is likely because those people had been trained on how to respond to a rape victim. It's because of our efforts within medicine, within psychology, and within marriage and family therapy. We've, we've all been advocating for change in this area for decades, and it seems that in this case, it, is, it has been likely fruitful. So this is, it's a good sign, I would say. Okay, so the other thing we can talk about here is rape culture. 
and the term rape culture gets thrown around a lot. And, and I find that a lot of people don't necessarily even know what it means and they use it in ways that are a little confusing to me. So just so everyone understands in short, rape culture is a culture in which sexual violence against women is excused by the society. So again, sexual violence being excused in our society. That's what rape culture is. And this culture of rape is perpetuated through many aspects of our culture, including anti-women language and objectification of women. So when we objectify women, this is perpetuating rape culture. When we have a lot of anti-women speech, like in, you know, hip hop songs, when you call them bitches and hoes, like this is, this, this perpetuates rape culture. And it's not just hip hop culture. It's, it's everywhere, but you know, you know what I mean? Uh, when we have commercials that treat women like they're just TNA and they're just here for uh, men's pleasure, this creates a, a culture that indoctrinates people into the notion that women are just things to have sex with and that they're not real human beings and they don't have real feelings and they're put on this planet for men's pleasure. And so this creates the premises upon which rape can occur in people. Now, again, there are sadistic people that get off on rape and so they're going to be motivated by rape without rape culture. But a lot of rape occurs in our society from people that would likely not rape if they were in a different culture that, that didn't have misogyny and didn't have these kinds of objectifications of women. Now, for most of you are thinking, so what society is that? Yeah, that's a good question. Most societies are quite misogynistic. But we, we know this, or you know, there's been a lot of research and a lot of literature and a lot of thinking about this because it's a, it's a very viable hypothesis that our, our culture plays a role in indoctrinating people into a way of thinking that increases the chance of people engaging in rape behaviors. So, so that's what rape culture is. And rape culture might have inf- influenced Brock Turner by making him believe that it's okay to have sex with an unconscious drunk girl. It, and if you're not around rape culture, then it's hard to imagine what possibly could have happened to make him believe that. But there are many people, particularly young men in our culture, who speak very badly about women. And if you're not around these people, you might not have ever heard it. And, and so you might not know what it looks like. But in my opinion, basically, these young men, they feel disempowered. They feel emasculated. They, they feel, you know, sort of powerless. Be, uh, and uh, they take revenge b- about this powerlessness and this low self-esteem by engaging in the misogynistic language as a shortcut to bonding with other men and also as a shortcut of trying to make yourselves feel better by putting down another group of people. It's the same as any kind of sexism or racism or any kind of otherism. It's when you feel insecure as a group, you will target another group with your 
with your hate speech, essentially, as a way of making yourself feel better. It happens all the time. It's happening everywhere with all sorts of groups around the world. So what this leads to is this mentality of scoring, quote unquote, with women. So if if you're in this kind of rape culture uh, pocket, then it becomes imperative to score with women. It becomes imperative that you must have sex with women and then don't call on the next day and then high five about it the next day. This, this is very important to this group of people. And again, if you're not in this culture, then you'll be like, really? Are dudes really like that? And to that, I will say that dudes are not like that, but some dudes are because they're in that particular kind of culture. But in general, I would say that most men are not that way, but I don't have any stats on that. But as a man, I have seen it because misogynistic men sometimes think I'm one of them and they expose me to their misogyny and their rape culture. For instance, once I was hanging out with a few guys, I didn't know them very well, but they knew each other pretty well and we were in public and one of them said, and he was married incidentally, he says, and he he turns to me and he says, oh, look at that chick over there. Nice ass on her, right? Yeah, something like that. That's not an exact quote, but but something like that. You know, ah, oh, check out that nice ass over there, huh? Huh? And you know, he was dead serious. He was and it was this surreal moment and very jarring to me because I didn't think of him that way. I didn't think he was like that. And I didn't know what to say. And I would have to I have to say if I was younger, I probably would have participated in it. Uh, but as a, an older guy, 45, and as, you know, as a therapist and a professor, I've been through a lot of different reflections and discussions and readings around misogyny and this sort of thing. Uh, when he did it, I immediately recognized it for what it was. It, it, it's like you're, you're objectifying her. There's nothing wrong with being attracted to somebody. There's nothing wrong with, with, in your mind going like, Oh, I'm attracted to that woman over there, but I'm married. So, you know, not going to entertain that one. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's nothing to turn to another guy and, and speak of another human being in that way that is demeaning to the other person, you know, just reducing them to their butt essentially. And it works both ways. You know, people will say like, well, women do that to men. And what I have to say to that is that's not cool either. It's not cool for anyone to objectify anybody. So uh, that's what I have to say about that. But anyway, when he said it at, in the moment, I was, it was so jarring. I didn't know what to say. So I'm pretty sure I just sort of awkwardly shrugged at him. <laughs> like, like, oh, God, yeah, nice butt over there. I don't know. And then later I reviewed and thought about all these different things I could have said, like, you know, I could have said something like, hey, I'm guessing you're merely repeating the oppressive paradigm you've been indoctrinated into, but please don't include me in your antiquated misogyny. Or, you know, I could have said something along those lines, something, you know, sufficiently clever and and demeaning to him. (laughs) You know, a, a real zinger or some kind of real feminist singer. I don't know. Of course, I didn't say that in the moment because uh, I'm not that smooth. Okay, so so that's rape culture that likely played a role in this situation. He he seems to there there are hints of hints of 
of rape culture and what he's talking about. And in the way his, the father talks in particular, you know, the 20 minutes of whatever, uh, what is it? I got it. What, what do you say? 20 minutes of 20 minutes of action is what he said. <laughs> this is a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a misogynistic thing to say for, for the father. And some of the stuff that the, that Brock Turner was saying was also, you know, it's like, ah, oh, you know, I just drank so much and I'm trying to reduce promiscuity in the world. And he's, you know, he's, he's trying to become an advocate for people not to drink so much and for not so much promiscuity, but you know, raping someone behind a dumpster while they're passed out is not promiscuity. That is rape and harm to somebody. Anyway. Um, the other thing that we can talk about here culturally is middle-class white male privilege. Class is something that we don't often talk about in the United States, but we all know it's there. So I don't know what class he's in, but we, we definitely know he's not lower class because he's at Stanford. Even if he's on, even if his family is poor uh, and he's there on a swimming scholarship, you, upon setting foot on Stanford University campus as a student, you're instantly at least middle class. So according to many, including my definition of class, because class is not dependent on money per se. It's, it's, it's on the status that you have in society. And Stanford is, you know, one of the top schools in the United States. And uh, so, and you're a, you know, you're a, you're going to be in the Olympics you're one of the top uh, swimmers in the nation. So you, you definitely have clout and, and that provides a lot of privilege. Plus obviously he's white and blonde and he's male. So he's got, you know, a lot of privilege. And of course we have to mention that it's been repeatedly empirically demonstrated that white people get lesser sentences than non-white people. So there's a lot of statistics out there that look at the sentencing uh, how how harsh the sentences are for identical crimes, and time and time again, white people get off with much lesser sentences with with the exact same crime. So we just can't deny it. I mean, let's just imagine that instead of a swimmer at Stanford, white male kid with blonde hair, let's now imagine a black. Uh, boy from the inner city with a hoodie and he's poor. Let's imagine poor black kid who talks like a poor kid from the inner city. Let's imagine that guy is found raping a white girl behind a dumpster. Let's just imagine, just picture that in your mind, if you will. Can you imagine a white judge giving that poor black kid from the inner city that that you know kid who raped a white girl can you imagine only six months as the sentence with three months for good behavior can you imagine that now it's all hypothetical so we can't really say for sure but that seems highly unlikely to me so we just have to acknowledge that that's definitely a part of this picture and one also of the main reasons why the uh, media is talking about it and why people are tweeting about it so much is because they're asking that same question. Look at this white kid 
of course he only gets six months. If it was a black kid, it would have been so much more. So it would have been so much, so much worse. We don't really know the answer to that. And I'd love to see the research on that specific question. Uh, actually I have seen the research on it. I looked it up and, um, I remember one study was saying that black people, uh, get 60% longer sentences for the exact same crimes. And so, so anyway, um, that's what we could say about that. All right. Now, in conclusion, what does this all mean? Well, to me, it means I, I have a lot of optimism. I'm a fairly optimistic person. And in this situation, I'm seeing a lot of good things. What I'm seeing is, is that the bad people are being punished. This kid's life is ruined. In some ways, I wonder if he wished he would have gotten five years in prison because then there wouldn't have been if if he would have gotten five years or even three years or something, my guess is is that no one would know his name and I wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. So I'm guessing he uh, wishes he had a longer sentence. So his life is is ruined. I mean, I, I never know for how long his life is going to be ruined, but his life is ruined for for a long time. Everyone around him is going to know. Oh, you're that guy. Oh, you're that guy. You're that you're that guy who brutally raped that woman behind a dumpster. I mean, you're that guy. And so, you know, it, it just, if you're looking for justice, then in my mind, it's it's already happening. Now, maybe it needs to continue to happen, but but it's definitely happening. And the judge, if you think the judge has a problem and and or you want to send a message to other judges not to fuck around when it comes to stuff like this, then, you know, this this particular judge's life is ruined as well. He's very likely to lose his job soon. And I am sure that judges around the country are paying very close attention to this because they're, they're thinking back and they're thinking, Oh man, if if the if the public scrutinized every single sentencing decision I've made for every white kid that I've come across, I am guessing they would be just as angry at me, if not more angry. And so my guess is is that we're going to see and I, I hope that someone researches this, my guess is we're gonna see an uptick in the sentencing harshness to young white kids. <laughs> so God bless you if you're a young white kid, uh, you know, coming up the pike here, but who, who commits a crime? Having said that, I'll probably just bring you to close to parity in terms of the way other people of other races are being treated. But anyway, again, that's just me. I'm optimistic. I, I think that we're seeing some good things here. Also, we're seeing that the good people are getting support. The internet is a hundred percent seemingly in terms of what I've seen. The internet is 100% in support of the victim. I couldn't find anyone who was against her. I'm sure that'll emerge soon. But for the most part, the victim has been heard. She's also been a really good spokesperson for other victims. This is this has shed a, a lot of light on date rape and other kinds of rape and sexual assault. And I think that our society is moving forward. I think we're progressing as a society. The, the narrative is that a kid did something wrong and a, a woman 
regardless of how drunk she is, should never be treated like that. And so there's a lot of, you know, dom- now, do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. We are far from where we need to be. We still have a culture of rape, uh, and we still have a culture of misogyny, and we still have a culture of sexism. So it'll be a long time before I'm saying it's, you know, yay, we're we're done, you know. But if ever in my lifetime, I'm guessing I never will. But, you know, there was a time when things like allowing women to vote w- was a debated topic in our society, and we decided a hundred years ago or so that women should be allowed to vote, and we established that. And it it was a difficult transition as we made that. Well, similarly with rape culture and misogyny and sexism, and white male privilege, we're we're in a we're in a period of struggle with that. In the past, we were, for the most part, blind to its reality, and now we're we're seeing it, and we're we're struggling with it as a society, and we're we're making efforts to to change that, and we're changing people's minds every day. We're helping our country understand that sexism is here. Uh, Twenty years ago, there were less people who. Uh, knew that. And now there's more people in this story and all of our conversations is helping with that effort. And that I think is a, is a very good thing. My only hope is, is that that's, you know, that, that through this process, good lessons are learned often in situations like that. And in situations like this, not good lessons are learned, but, uh, but I don't know. It's, I, the narrative seems to be a good one, but I don't know. As I think about it in reality, my guess is, is people are just reading the headlines on this one. And I don't know how, how helpful that is, but I don't know, maybe it's helpful. But in closing, I'll say this, that, that there's really just one question that really plagues me on this. And that is, is what would have happened if those two Swedish dudes hadn't passed by at that very moment, you know, what would it, what would have happened if they hadn't passed by or they just looked the other way? You know, when I just imagine the, the luck of the situation that these, these two guys happen to pass by, it's 1am in the morning, it's dark out and they pass by and they see this and they actually look and then and then they chase him down i mean what it just it seems so uh rare for something like that to happen and it plagues me because it makes me wonder how many crimes like this are happening all the time and two guys aren't coming by and they don't try to intervene how many times do people just look the other way? How many times do people just say, ah, oh, I'm sure it's nothing, or, oh, there's two people having sex over there, oh, you know, and they just they just keep moving. How many times is that happening right now? How many times is someone being raped and no one even just walks by, that it, it it's not witnessed by anybody, and they get away with it? It's It's a creepy feeling to me and scary and depressing. It's just depressing that in our society in 2016, we still have this happening. And 
as I said earlier, you know, with the psychopathic sadists, we can't do much about that. For many of them, they're to some extent, some of them are born that way. A lot of them haven't been born that way, but, but for those people, we can just say, well, you know, they're driven toward that and they're highly pathological and they're rare. And so, you know, that's that. But so many of the rapes that happen, particularly on college campuses are happening because of preventable factors that we have yet to prevent. (laughs) We have yet to prevent rape culture. We have yet to prevent over drinking. We have yet to prevent safety measures. Uh, We've yet to, you know, implement safety measures for stuff like this. It's not hard. It's, it's not rocket science. And if we spent as much time or even a fraction of the time that we spend on things like math in school or, um, I don't know, English, you know, when we, every year of every, uh, school I went to growing up, we studied English every day up until, I don't know, I was a junior in high school. If we just spent a fraction of that effort on things like misogyny, on things like sexism, on things like feminism, on things like racism in the justice system, if we just spent a fraction of time on on these issues, we we could actually accelerate our progress in this area. But we're too afraid as a society to talk about this, or at least we used to be. And we also get real weird about it when we do talk about it. There's a lot of, I think, I don't know, there's just a lot of pent-up anger that comes out with people. Instead of like, hey, let's have a conversation, it, it just comes out in this, just, this really horrible way. And we end up attacking everybody, you know, ah, you know, racist, you know, this judge, let's, let's scapegoat the judge. You know, the judge... If you string him up from a tree, is that going to satisfy the problem? No. If you get him ousted, is that going to solve our problem? No, it's not. What's going to solve our problem is by looking really critically at the at the justice system. And to me, because I've, I've had conversations with judges, and the thing that I've learned in my old age is that judges are human beings. And I know that sounds funny, but... Judges are just like you and me, and they go to work, and they do their job, and they don't know everything, and they're, they're insecure. And we are asking judges to be perfect human beings who have no bias. But in what other job can we require that of somebody? I'm a therapist, and I can tell you that we routinely and frequently and periodically talk about the fact amongst ourselves that there is no way to be unbiased, that to even propose such a thing is preposterous. All of us are biased. We all come from a cultural pocket, and we all see things through lenses, and our entire reality is is based on these lenses, that we can't see reality without lenses. And so it's impossible to expect a judge not to be biased, but we expect but but we do we expect them to be objective and um and you know that's just silly we also expect a you know kind of particular legal system to work best for people in situations like this and it doesn't always work best but we just let it happen and we don't necessarily change anything i'm not an expert maybe we are doing things to change it but it doesn't seem like it's enough you know so anyway 
the big question that plagues me is what would have happened if these guys didn't come ac- come across this scene and what what would have happened if they didn't intervene and chase this guy down and and catch him it just terrifies me and depresses me again to think about all the horrible things that are happening to people around the globe right now and it just makes me feel so helpless you know that uh so many of us don't want that to happen and these rare individuals are walking around just doing horrible traumatic things to people that they'll be suffering from for decades so on that depressing note that does it for this episode of psychology in seattle thanks for joining me if you haven't already please become a patron of the podcast Uh, if you've listened this far you are likely a fan of the podcast and it'd just be really great if you became a patron a number of you have already i think we have something like 300 plus patrons and it's just it's just so wonderful to have had to have you guys a part of the team shall we say if more and more of you become patrons i'll be able to have episodes like this one like this one i normally when i make episodes i record them non-topical things but i always thought it'd be kind of cool to have topical episodes you know where uh we talk about things that happened that day and then publish them you know as soon as possible for you so that it can be relevant to that time and the only way we can do that is if we have more funds to justify pulling us away from our other jobs. And uh, so you can be a part of that. And if you're already a patron, you're already putting effort into that. So thanks a lot. Anyway, that does it for this episode. It's now almost one in the morning and my brain is fried. Uh, thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself. Please take care of other people because we all deserve it.